All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI Podcast. I am your host, Sam Sherrington, and today I'm joined by Johan Bremer. Johan is a research scientist at Qualcomm AI Research in Amsterdam. Before we get going, be sure to take a moment to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to today's show. Johan, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Sam. Thanks a lot for having me. Super excited to have you. We're going to be talking about one of the papers that you presented at NeurIPS on causal representations, as well as some of the things that your colleagues presented at the conference. But before we do that, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in machine learning. I grew up as a particle physicist, so I was trying to figure out the best way that we can measure the properties of all these elementary particles around us, like the Higgs boson, from all the data collected at the Large Hadron Collider. Now, that's an inherently statistical problem, right? You need tools from statistics and from machine learning to solve this problem with all that high-dimensional data and the many parameters you're trying to measure. And during that time, I figured out that I actually enjoy working with the methods, with the statistics and the machine learning much more than talking about the theoretical questions I set out to solve in the first place. So from there, it was a slippery slope. I started working on statistics for particle physics. I uh, then did some machine learning for the sciences. And suddenly, I found myself in Amsterdam working on machine learning problems that have nothing to do with particle physics with some great colleagues. And initially, or immediately into communications types of problems and the kind of things that you work on at Qualcomm, or did you start in another area? So in my first year at Qualcomm, I worked on video compression with neural networks. Okay. I think my colleague, Auke Vigas from that team, was recently on your podcast and explained uh, yeah. all that much better than I would do it justice now. Okay. But there was a nice introduction to Qualcomm and all the research they were doing there. But then, like, one year in, we started a new team on causality. Mm-hmm. Now, relative to some of the other folks that I've talked to on the Qualcomm AI research team, causal work is much less applied than video compression, for example. Yeah, totally true. I think Qualcomm has kind of this uh, full spectrum of research that ranges from pretty applied, like model efficiency, neural network quantization, video compression, these kind of things, to pretty fundamental, like geometric deep learning, equivariance, and uh, now also causality. But they're all united by this idea of making AI more efficient in some way. And I think in, for causality, the idea is that causality may be a framework that helps us solve some problems that are currently pretty much unsolvable with the standard paradigms in machine learning. But it may take some years to get there. Mm-hmm. And what are some of those types of problems that you think causality can help us solve in, in ways that will be much more efficient? Yeah, so machine learning systems right now are great, right? Like just by scaling up the data sets and scaling up the models, we can solve many problems much better than we thought we could. I mean, uh, look at ChatGPT. <laughs> we were just talking about that. <laughs> yeah, there's still some things that are really uh, hard for these problems. And one case is kind of the brittleness under changes. If you train a model in one set of conditions and then deploy it under a different set of conditions, then often the performance goes down quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Machine learning systems have a hard time with uh, sim to real with any kind of changing conditions. Now, causality on a very high level is a framework reasoning about changes, about robustness under changes. On an intuitive level, I think it makes a lot of sense that this can help us address these open problems. However, I should say that it's not totally clear concretely how this will work, right? This is an open research field. Causal machine learning has really just started gaining momentum a few years ago. So let's see where this takes us. Yeah, yeah. Before we dive into the paper about your research at Qualcomm, is it entirely focused on causality or are you covering several areas as well? It's about causality and interactive learning. So it kind of focuses on a lot of topics that border on reinforcement learning. We have some projects on imitation learning. Maybe um, we'll get into that a little bit later. We have some projects on 
unsupervised reinforcement learning, kind of what can you learn in a setting where you have an interactive environment, but no reward function and no expert demonstrations, mm. then there's kind of the more classical causality. Awesome. And so this particular paper that we wanted to spend some time talking about is called Weekly Supervised Causal Representation Learning. Unpack that title a bit and <laughs> the goals you have for the paper. Yes, excellent. Let me start a little bit from the end of it, right? So the, the paper title ends with representation learning. And one of the two goals of this paper is to learn meaningful representations of data. What do I mean with that? If you have data presented to you in some kind of low-level format, think the pixels of an image or maybe of a video feed or anything that we can record with sensors, really. We want to train a neural network to take that as an input and output a much smaller number of high-level variables that capture the meaningful aspects of a system, similar to how humans reason about a system. When I show an image, you're not thinking, oh, these are some, some really nice collection of pixels here, right? You think this image shows, for instance, a car on a road in front of a traffic light. And the relevant variables are probably something like the position of the car, maybe the speed of the car, and then the state of the traffic light, whether it's red or green. So this is a much smaller number of meaningful variables, and we want to train a neural network to put this out. So that's the representation learning part. Now, going one word uh, more to the beginning, there's a causal in there. <laughs> the second goal in our work is that we also want to learn a causal model between these high-level variables. At its core, a causal model is about the interactions between concepts. So again, in this example of a car before a traffic light, right? as humans, it's very intuitive to us that we think that the traffic light state, like the, whether it's green or red, influences, causes the behavior of the driver, whether they accelerate the car or brake the car. So kind of there's a causal effect from the traffic light state to the velocity of the car but not the other way around. And this is important because it allows us to reason about what if questions. As a human, it's very easy for us to say, if uh, the traffic light would turn to red, the car would break. If the car would break, it wouldn't necessarily make the traffic light go red. Now, machine learning systems, at least the majority of them, do not really reason about this kind of cause and effect relations. Most machine learning systems are stuck at the level of describing correlation patterns. So for instance, looking at a data set that shows you images of cars on traffic lights, machine learning system could figure out that Green lights are correlated with fast velocities and red lights are correlated with braking cars. But this doesn't allow the machine learning system to answer a question, what happens if the car breaks? Mm -hmm. Does the traffic light then suddenly change? So this is really a new kind of capability that doesn't exist in most kind of machine learning systems. There's the weekly supervised part in the title. In this paper, what we do is we learn a neural network that represents data from pixel level into this kind of low number of meaningful high-level variables and also learns the causal relations between them. But we do this without explicit labels in the training data. So there's no label that tells us in this image, the velocity of the car is 30 kilometers per hour, or that's 20 miles per hour, or what have you, anything like that, right? So we just train this from example on the pixel level. But it's impossible to do this fully unsupervised. Mm -hmm. There are some papers that prove that this problem is really underspecified if you have just IID data, just images. Yeah. And the way that we solve this is by breaking the ID assumption. We consider non-IID data, so kind of data with some structure in it. Concretely, we consider the case where we observe the system kind of pairs of before and after images. So we mm -hmm. take a picture of the street, then something changes in the scene, like some effect is applied to it. For instance, you switch the traffic light state from red to green and let all the causal effects of that play out. And then you take another picture of the scene. And we just need this kind of before and the after image but no further labels, no information on what happened before and after. If we have this kind of paired data, then we can show that this is enough to really learn the true causal variables in a scene and the true causal effects, the true causal graph, all the mechanisms that govern the scene. Yeah. 
Now, I'd love to maybe start talking about how far along you are and how far the method that you've identified can take us and ask that in the context of this one diagram that you have at the very beginning of the paper Mm -hmm. that kind of articulates what you're hoping to do. It's a picture of some standing dominoes. That's your before picture. And then you have some dominoes tipped over. Presumably there's an intervention between the two. Someone tipped a domino. And the grand idea is that you, with enough of these domino pictures, you can start to learn that if you've got some kind of domino tipping intervention, what the outcome will be after you've applied that intervention. Yeah, that's exactly right. And yet we're not at the point where I can, given your trained model, take a picture of some dominoes and apply this intervention somehow or say that, okay, give me the picture after the dominoes have fallen and get that resulting picture. Correct? That's unfortunately correct. Yes. I think we make a pretty strong claim in this paper, right? We have this really strong claim that we can identify the causal structure and the right variables and everything correctly. But to get such a strong result, we also need strong assumptions. And the strongest assumption is, I think, this kind of data regime that we need this data in this before and after uh, pairing. And we also need to assume that nothing else changes between the before and the after image, just like one thing is intervened upon, one action happens. But we also need to make a couple of more technical assumptions. And unfortunately, many real-world examples violate some of these technical assumptions that we need for our theory, at least. So in particular, in this domino case, if you have two domino pieces, if you push over one, it would knock over the second one. Mm -hmm. If you push over the second, it could knock over the first one. So the the graph here, in some sense, is cyclic, right? Like each domino, like they affect each other pairwise. And this is something that standard causal frameworks can't really deal with so easily because we always assume that the graph of causal interactions needs to be acyclic. Something can can be the cause of something else, but then it can't also be the effect of that variable. There's no Mm. back and forth relation in in classical causal models. Now, there's some ways to resolve that, but in this work, we just assume that the causal structure is indeed acyclic. So there's a clear causal ordering of mechanisms. The traffic light causes the velocity, but the velocity doesn't cause the traffic light. Just one of these two things is possible. So this is one setting that domino example violates. But I think it's, it's really good to look at these cases that we can't deal with yet, because ultimately what we want to do is we want to solve real-world problems. So we really need to kind of look at what our theory can't describe yet and push there. And I think the way forward maybe to give up a little bit on the theoretic rigor, to maybe not aim for theorems and proofs, but aim for just algorithms that empirically work ultimately. Mm-hmm. But in this current paper, we are kind of at the closer to the fundamental side of things. We have some theory. I think we understood some things better, but we don't have this one-size-fits-all algorithm that you can deploy to real-world examples. And certainly not, we haven't solved autonomous driving yet. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But what you've done is you've demonstrated that it is possible to identify these causal variables from, you know, for example, from just pixels, which is yes. pretty impressive in and of itself. Oh, thank you for saying that. Does the paper just demonstrate that it is possible or does the paper demonstrate how to derive the causal variables themselves? It has both. So I think a large fraction of the contribution of this paper is the theory. So there it's basically mostly one theorem and the proof that accompanies it. But we also have a practical implementation. And essentially it consists of a variational autoencoder. So there's an encoder that takes as input pixels and it outputs some latent variables. And these latent variables are the causal variables of the system. And then there's a decoder that maps that back to the pixel space. Mm -hmm. And what's new about this kind of variational autoencoder is that we describe some causal structure in the latent space. So the latent variables are not just described by some 
IID Gaussian prior, like most VIEs do it. But we have a prior that really incorporates the causal structure, the graph between the variables. Um, this graph is learned during training and also the exact mechanism, how each variable affects each other variable. And yeah, this kind of VAE, we, we train this on these paired data sets of before and uh, after the intervention images. And then we, we show in a series of experiments with some, we start with some very simple toy data sets as we work towards simple image data sets that this works in practice. Mm-hmm. Is it interesting or kind of obvious and not interesting that the parallels between the video compression stuff that we talked about before that might use a encoder decoder type of architecture and that you're able to do the same thing here, you're kind of compressing the dynamics of the system happening before and after in pixel space into some kind of reduced dimensionality, causally semantic space. Yeah, that's a good point. It definitely has some parallels. Like the, the overall architecture is very similar. But I think there's one important difference, and that is that the kind of goal that we are trying to achieve, right? And, and compression, is it's really about this aspect of compression. But then kind of how we use these different bits, how we use the representation of the latent space doesn't really matter. Like the, the model can do whatever it wants. And, and if you visualize the latent representation that a compression autoencoder learns, you'll see that it's really not interpretable by humans. Like varying one latent variable leads to some very weird outputs in image space. In contrast, our model doesn't really care so much about the bitrate used in the end. I mean, it does play a role in the loss function a little bit, but it's not really the goal. The goal is really the variables in the end have some meaning. The latent variables are exactly the true latent variables up to some permutations and rescalings. There's definitely some kind of machine learning knowledge that that we gained on this compression work that we could use in the causality work. Mm -hmm. But I think the interpretation of the results is very different. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that there's kind of this one theorem that's at the heart of the paper. Can you talk a little bit more detail about that theorem? Yeah, uh, I'm happy to. This basically says if you have two models, and with model I now mean causal model between some variables, and then Mm -hmm. a map that takes these causal variables and maps them to some data space, so think pixels. So we call this a latent causal model. Now, what this theorem says, if you have two latent causal models, such that both of these latent causal models give rise to the same kind of data set if you look at them. So if you kind of look at what kind of images you would get from the first latent causal model and what kind of images before and after images you'd get from the second causal model, they are the same. There's the same distribution. Then the two latent causal models are the same in the sense that they have the same latent variables, they have the same causal structure up to some equivalence class. And this equivalence class basically tells you that, for instance, we can't resolve permutations. If one model has variable one and two, and then the second model has variable two and one in the opposite order, then there's just something we, we can't further resolve because we never get labels. But up to these kind of small and one might say irrelevant effects, th- those two models need to be the same. Now, why does this theorem matter? It's because if you think of one of these two models as the generative process, the ground truth process that generated observed data in some setting, mm. maybe it's like the physical laws of the universe, or it's like the, yeah. the rules of the traffic scene, or maybe there's some human psychology in there, whatever, some ground truth process that generates a data set. And the second model is some neural implementation of a latent causal model. So we use a VAE, we use neural parameterizations of the causal structure, and we train it to maximize our training objective. And then under some additional assumption that we have a good optimizer, that we have enough data and so on, like the usual machine learning assumptions, then our theorem implies that in the end, our learned model will recover the ground truth uh, causal variables and the ground truth causal structure. Mm-hmm. Of course, the, the hidden assumption here is that indeed nature operates as such a causal model. And as we've already discussed in this domino example, there's sometimes some subtleties where our assumptions are not satisfied. Mm-hmm. What are the mechanisms that you use to prove this theorem? 
Ha. Oh, that's a fun question. And I like to talk more about this, but maybe I, I try to keep this kind of short. My two <laughs> collaborators, uh, my two main collaborators on this paper, Pim Dahan and Taku Cohen are both believers and practitioners of a field of uh, mathematics called category theory. Okay. This is like the most abstract of mathematics. <laughs> They really try to find like the most general structures that exist and try to unify many different fields of mathematics. We are not really using category theory, but we're using one tool, one particular graphical language developed in category theory called string diagrams. And okay. we use string diagrams to kind of represent different probabilistic equations, kind of relations between different uh, probability distributions graphically. And then you can use some nice manipulations on these and then use that to prove the theorem. Interesting. I have to say, when I started out with this project, I was a bit skeptical about this and I like to make fun of my colleagues. And category theory in general or? <laughs> no, I think category theory is beautiful, but I was skeptical that it would give us practical advantages for this concrete project. Mm. But then it did uh, simplify the proof here quite a bit. And I want to say I, my colleagues really showed me the way a little bit there. That's awesome. Did that just happen to be the approach that worked or was the project conceived as with that solution in mind? No, I would say we, we started out just from the actual kind of question. Can we identify causal variables? Can we identify causal structure just from pixel level data? And then our first version of the proof looked much longer and much less elegant and did not involve any fancy diagrams, but then that evolved over time into something prettier. Yeah. So it was more of a later stage of the project. Okay. And you're careful to distinguish the causal variables and the causal structure or the causal relationships. Can you more carefully distinguish the two and really talk about the relationships and how causal relationships are expressed? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. So in causality, one of the, the really important things is that we really don't just reason about variables, but reason about variables and the mechanisms that generate them. And what I mean with that is that the causal model, or there's different frameworks, but the one that's most widely used these days, describes the relation between variables is kind of factorized into a number of, if you want, cause and effect relations. Each of them takes the form of some mechanism. So in the, the road example that we had, uh, one mechanism could, for instance, be how the, the traffic light is programmed, right? It probably has some frequency, how often it's green, how often it's red, how that changes. That's one mechanism. And then a separate mechanism is how the car behavior adapts to the traffic light and maybe also to other things it sees on the road. Mm -hmm. So that kind of determines the car velocity as a function of all the other inputs, in particular as the function of the, the traffic light state. Uh, this is something that depends now on the particular driver. And what's kind of cool about this is that these mechanisms are independent in the sense that if you think about a different version of the scene, let's say we move to a different city, then maybe the traffic light frequency is totally different. So you can kind of change this one mechanism. But the way that humans react to traffic light will stay the same, right? That's kind of universal. So we only have to swap one mechanism when we change the scenery, but we can keep the other one. Yeah. This uh, sparse mechanism shift hypothesis, as it's called sometimes, is the essential reason why people believe that causality can help us with things like domain shift. Mm -hmm. Because we can think that if, if everything is composed of mechanisms, it's quite likely that when we change conditions, if we go from sim to real or from one country to another one, just a few of these mechanisms change, while other things are more universal, like the laws of physics are the same everywhere. Some human behaviors are the same everywhere, but other things change, like go to the UK and suddenly you have to drive on the left side of the road. Mm -hmm. Now, going back to the exchange we had about the parallel between compression and what you're doing here, identifying causal representations, you mentioned that in the case of compression, the goal is to find kind of the, the minimalist representation of this function, if you will. In this case, you're trying to identify a representation that is true to the causal nature that you're trying to model. I guess intuitively, it strikes me that 
the causal representation would also be minimal. Like in the case of the traffic scenario we're talking about, really the only things that matter are the traffic light and the cars and everything else is noise that might be captured by some other model. But the fundamental things that are causing the system to behave the way it's behaving are the traffic light and the, the car behavior. And if you can model those and just those as a set of causal relationships, that would seem like it should be minimal. Where does that break down? Yeah, that's a great question. It is true that in some sense, causal mechanisms are generally assumed to be simple, right? Especially for humans, we assume that kind of the, if we factor a probability distribution along the causal mechanisms, so if we describe everything with the causal mechanisms, it's a much simpler thing than if we parameterize it in some other way. Now, I think where this breaks down is that ultimately what's simple to humans and what's simple to machine learning algorithms, at least right now, isn't quite the same yet. So the way that machine learning capacity works translates into different notions of simplicity for totally neural prior and then a neural decoder, then notions of simplicity for kind of when humans read an expression, what do they think of the complexity of something? Mm -hmm. But I do think it's very interesting to explore this further and think more about things like the minimal description length principle and how that could be applied maybe to compression. And maybe indeed there is a deeper relation how we can use some of these ideas of simplicity that pop up both in causality and in compression. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. There was some prior work that attempted to do something similar, identify causal representations, but found that it was not possible. <laughs> is that the case? That's exactly right. There's a very well done paper by Francesco Locatello. I think it won a best paper award at ICML, I want to say 2020, where they basically show that if you just have ID data, if you just have individual images, but kind of just one image from each scene, mm -hmm. that then you can't even identify the variables, even if you assume that, that the causal relations are in some sense trivial. Hmm. And that kind of implies that for more complicated causal structures, you can also not do it. So the way that we get around this is by introducing this non-IID setting where we have these pairs of observations. Mm. And actually for full fairness here, I would point out that this is not a totally novel idea. There was another paper by Francesco Locatello at ICML 2021, I think, okay. where they already think about this weekly supervised setting and observing a system before and after something has changed. But they focus on the trivial case where trivial sounds so negative. What I mean is the, the case where all the causal variables are independent. So there's no causal relations between anything. We just have statistically independent uh, latent variables, and they show that those can be identified. What we do in our paper is we extend that to the setting where there's actually non-trivial causal structure, and that we can even then learn the variables, and even more that we can also identify the causal structure. Okay. Is there an experimental component to your paper at all? So in the sense, yes, that we evaluate our VAE algorithm on synthetic data. We, we start with some simple toy data sets, and then later we scale up to, to image data sets. But also these data sets are not real photos of some real scenes or anything like that. We start with a standard uh, benchmark for causal representation learning, the uh, causal 3D ident data set or a variation of that was introduced in a paper by uh, Julius uh, van Kugelgen and others. And then we introduce our own data set. We call it causal circuit because we weren't quite satisfied with the available benchmarks. And in this causal circuit data set, you see a robotic finger operating a bunch of buttons that are connected to lights in a way. And they be sure that in this data set, you can correctly identify kind of which pixels map to the buttons and to the, the robotic finger and how everything is related. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I guess the salient point in this data set is that the, when the robot interacts with a button and it turns on that light, that doesn't impact any of the other lights, for example. Is that true? 
Yeah, kind of. So we actually, just for fun, we added a little causal relation there that like if you press one of the lights, turns on one of the other ones as well. But in principle, you could also have the kind of independent thing. But I think one very obvious thing is like the robot, which is also in the scene, that causes the lights, right? It's not the other way around. You could in principle also think there's some kind of magnet under the table. And whenever one light activates, that magnet pulls the robot arm closer to it. Just from looking at mm-hmm. individual pictures, there's no way of telling these two apart. But with this kind of paired data, this data setting that we introduced, and we, we show that we can actually resolve this and we can learn that the robot arm causes the lights to go on and not the other way around. I think that was a really interesting paper. And I'm personally interested in following along with kind of how that work evolves and how far we can push this idea of just pulling causal representation from images and whittling down the set of constraints that need to be applied to the model that that you create from them. But I also wanted to talk to you about some of the papers that your colleagues presented at NeurIPS, and there were several. A couple of those were on combinatorial optimization broadly. Can you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, I'm happy to. So my colleagues wrote two papers on combinatorial optimization that were accepted at NeurIPS. One that was written by Mukul Gagrani and Corrado Rainona and some others on uh, neural topological ordering for computation graphs. And a second that was on uh, batch Bayesian optimization over permutation led by Chang Yong Oh, Cuba students, so a student of the University of Amsterdam in a Qualcomm-sponsored lab there. What both of these papers have in common is that they are about the problem of finding some optimal ordering of some objects under constraints. So where this shows up, for instance, is in computation graphs, when you have some, for instance, neural network that has a number of operations that need to be performed, and you want to execute them on your hardware in the right order, where right order means you want to be this be as fast as possible, you want to use as little memory as possible, but you also have to satisfy some precedence constraints that you don't execute an operation while all the inputs aren't available yet, right? Mm-hmm. And this is a hard problem because the number of operations uh, can be large and the number of possible orders of operations uh, grows very quickly with the number of operations. In this neural topological ordering paper, my colleagues develop a new attention-based graph neural network with a suitable message passing algorithm to solve this problem. It's called a topoformer. I think what's really key about this idea is that this graph-based transformer combines both the local topology of the computation graph, so kind of for each operation, you have the information kind of what are the preceding operations that you require and for which other operations is the output required, but also in the computation, you're readily available global information about the structure of the graph. So each node can kind of talk to each part of the graph at the same time in this message passing algorithm. Now, that was a bit technical, but the bottom line is that this works really well. On If you just compare to similarly fast algorithms, this is really state of the art both on synthetic graphs and on a few real-world examples. And I think it's still competitive with algorithms that are some orders of magnitudes uh, slower than this uh, method. In this context, when you compare synthetic graphs versus real-world, elaborate on that. You know, real-world problems will be kind of represented as a a graph. The graph itself isn't real-world necessarily. (laughs) That's a good point. But what I mean with the real-world problem here is more something like you have some neural network that somebody really trains. So uh, usually people use some kind of standard neural networks. And then if you look at the structure of the neural network, you can extract the computation graph from that. So the graph is as much real world as the neural network is. It's not that you can see it on the street, of course, but there's kind of some consensus in the field of what these networks look like. So this is a problem that appears for real world compilers when these networks are executed. Got it. Got it. While synthetic graphs is really you want to generate a graph with, uh, you say, I don't know, I want 10,000 nodes and I want like each edge to exist with a probability of 0.1. And I want the graph to be acyclic. And and those are kind of the constraints you put in. And then you just put on your random number generator. So typically, these have a little bit less structure than real-world graphs. 
Got it. Yeah, so the, the other paper, Batch Bayesian Optimization on Permutations Using Acquisition-Weighted Kernels, is essentially on the same problem. So it's, it's still about finding the right order for a number of objects. But now they consider the case where computing the performance for each order, so the, the cost function or whatever you want to call it, is uh, really expensive. Right? So you can only run it uh, a few times. So in this setting, you have to be smart about how you perform your training, which different configuration, which permutations you query. And Bayesian optimization is one framework that allows you to do this in a principled way. So you kind of, at each step, you try to find that permutation that allows you to gain the most information on the optimal configuration. Without getting into too many details here, I think my colleagues here introduce the uh, first batched Bayesian optimization method for optimizing over permutations. Batch means that you can kind of evaluate a number of configurations in parallel, which is really practical if you, for instance, have multiple devices, multiple GPUs during training. Mm -hmm. And again, like this other paper, I think what really stands out is after developing this algorithm that this is just state of the art, it beats existing methods on, on standard benchmarks. Got it, got it. As we mentioned earlier, a number of your colleagues work on equivariant deep learning. And a couple of the papers at this year's NeurIPS were on that topic. Can you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, we have two papers on equivariant deep learning at NeurIPS. The first is led by Gabriele Cesar, and uh, three of the four authors of that paper were actually previously on your podcast, I believe. There was Arash, Taco, and uh, Max were all colleagues, or nice. in Max's case, a former colleague of mine, and who you talked to at some point. Anyway, uh, this paper is about uh, cryo-electron microscopy. Have you heard about that? No, tell me more about that. Yes, it's a really cool and pretty new imaging method for structural biology, and it has really revolutionalized this field a little bit. And it, I think it also has won Nobel Prize in 2017. Oh, wow. So the idea is you're a biologist, you have some molecules, say a protein or something, and you want to reconstruct the 3D structure of that. Now, that's hard to do because molecules are kind of small. So what you can do is take a bunch of these molecules, solve them in some solution, freeze the solution in a very thin layer, and then uh, bombard it with electrons and image kind of the results of this. This gives you a bunch of okay. really noisy two-dimensional images. Now, the task is, of course, to, you have kind of have to combine these noisy two-dimensional images into the 3D structure of, of the molecule uh, that you started with. And that's really difficult, one, because of the noise, and two, because uh, you don't know the orientation of the molecules, right? They are frozen in some, mm. some liquid, but you have no idea which way around. So you need to infer the pose for each of these molecules first. And this is the problem that my colleagues tackle here. They develop a new algorithm for inferring the pose of uh, three-dimensional molecules from these cryo-EM images. And they tackle this using some strategy from group theory. It's, I think it's called a group synchronization framework. It's okay. quite technical, but the bottom line here is that they incorporate the structures, the geometric symmetries of the problem into the algorithm as much as possible. And then they, those are smart people, they, they figure out that you can infer the 3D poses of these molecules from these 2D images uh, a little bit better than before. This is the starting point to nice. then plug the, the resulting post estimates into some 3D reconstruction algorithm and then get better uh, reconstructions of this molecule. Maybe on a slightly higher level, um, I think this is another example for how when you take in, into account the geometric structure of your problem, the symmetries of a problem, it can really make your machine learning algorithms or classical algorithms more efficient. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of what that group focusing on the equivariant stuff focuses on those symmetries yeah. applied in all different places. Yeah, that's right. And maybe that's a good uh, transition to this other paper by uh, Arash Bebodi, also uh, Gabriele and others, called a Peck Bayesian Generalization Bound on, for Equivariant Networks. Now here, they really study how much you can win when you include incorporate equivariance or kind of the geometric structure 
into the architectural choices in neural network. And they do this using a framework called uh, PackBase. So the idea is basically that you can develop a theoretic upper bound on how much your loss can become worse when you go from training data to test data, right? And what they do is that they show mm -hmm. that this bound on the loss, so there's this kind of generalization error, becomes better the more symmetry constraints you incorporate in the architecture of your neural network. So in some sense, they theoretically show that equivariant neural networks generalize better than non-equivariant neural networks. Hmm. What I really like about this paper is that the, the result, this, this theoretic bound, also depends a little bit on the architectural choices you make in your neural network. So you can use this to provide some guidance for the design uh, of, of equivariant neural networks. How are the architectural choices parameterized? <laughs> so I think this is all about what kind of representations of your group you use in the hidden layers of your neural network. Okay. So representations of a group are kind of a classification of the different ways that groups can manifest themselves on mathematical objects, in particular on vector spaces. So if you have some latent variables, some hidden variables in a neural network, you can think about them, for instance, as vectors or as tensors or as higher order objects, and they all mm. transform differently under group transformations. Now, that was a quite dense sentence I just said, but, but basically, if you think about, uh, for instance, uh, translation symmetry, so kind of the idea that if you shift the input a little bit, the output should also shift a little bit in some way, then one representation of this is kind of just shifting in the same way, kind of the standard representation. Another representation is kind of the trivial representation where you just stay constant no matter what happened. This is exactly mm -hmm. invariant. So if the input shifts, your hidden layer or your output would kind of stay at the same point. And then there's higher order uh, representations where when you shift something, the hidden variables or the outputs behave in a more complicated way, but still in a way that reflects the symmetry structure of your problem. And what my colleagues find here is that these representations are, uh, that you choose for, for the design of your network are related to the bound on the generalization error. So they, they give you some guidance on how you can build equivariant networks in a way that have a, as small as possible bound on uh, the generalization error. There was a paper on quantization as well. Yes, our last paper at NeurIPS uh, called FP8 Quantization, the Power of the Exponent. This was led by uh, my colleagues Andre Kusmin and Mart van Baalen. And I think one of the authors, Timon, has also been on your podcast before, mm -hmm. is indeed about uh, neural network quantization. As you know, neural network quantization is maybe the most efficient way of making neural networks more efficient. And with that, I mean run faster, use less uh, memory, use less power, all these things. Uh, that's quite important when you want to run things on device. And that's something that Qualcomm cares a great deal about. But it's also maybe just important from a sustainability perspective. Now, one problem with quantization is that many different formats for the representation of weights and activations have been proposed. So there are integer representations and there are floating point representations, for instance. And for floating point representations, there's also many different ways you could construct the representation. What my colleagues do in this paper is that they compare 8-bit representations in theory and practice. In particular, they compare 8-bit integer representations and 8-bit floating-point uh, representations. And they train neural networks both in a quantization-aware way, so they kind of take into account how you quantize the neural network already during training, and for post-training quantization, where you run the quantization as an afterburner after your neural network has converged. The result of this paper is a very clear, it depends. <laughs> so if you want to use post-training quantization, and especially if you have large neural networks, let's say a large transformer, then a floating point quantization can be beneficial. But they also find that if you use quantization-aware training, so if you already include the knowledge that you're going to quantize your neural networks during training, then the difference becomes much smaller. 
And another point they make is that the performance of floating point quantization really depends on the hyperparameters you choose. And this is much more sensitive to the choice of hyperparameters than, than int aid quantization. Finally, I think it's important to say that if the performance of the things is kind of equal, integer quantization has the advantage that the hardware that is compatible with running that is often much more energy efficient. So all of the things being equal, I think uh, the go-to recommendation is maybe still int aid quantization here. Awesome. How about we quickly run through workshops and demos? Yeah. Were there any of those as well this year? Yeah, I, I'm happy to talk about those as well. We had a couple of workshop papers. I'm a little bit biased here, but I'd like to cherry pick just one of them because I was involved with it personally. Okay. This is a paper called Deconfounded Imitation Learning, uh, led by my colleague Risto Fuorio, presented at the Deep Reinforcement Learning Workshop in Europe. Now, okay. you know, imitation learning is about the problem of training a policy to not just maximize the reward function, but imitate behaviors in some offline data set generated by some experts, right? right. And this is advantageous because it doesn't require you to come up with a reward function, but also it can be uh, beneficial for safety, for instance, in autonomous driving. And where does the confounding problem <laughs> that's apparent in the title yeah, come in? Yeah, exactly. We're getting to that. Uh, the confounding problem appears when the expert and the imitator don't see exactly the same data. Let's say the expert has access to more data in his inputs than the imitator. Maybe let me give you a silly example for mm -hmm. this. So let's say we are trying to solve autonomous driving yep. and we are doing this through imitation learning where the data set is generated by some human drivers. Right? It's a reasonable setting, but these human drivers generally will have lots of additional information that then later the autonomous agent will not have. For instance, imagine a human driver listens to the weather forecast on the morning of generating the training data and maybe on the weather forecast they hear that the road conditions are going to be icy. And then even if you don't see anything on the road, I'm, I bet that their driving will be a little bit slow and a little bit more careful. A little bit more cautious. Yeah. Exactly. And that's a problem because then later the agent in the data set observes multiple examples where the inputs look the same, but the behavior of the, the agent is different. So what are they going to choose? Are they going to drive slowly? Are they going to drive fast? Mm -hmm. They have no way of inferring this. So they must make some, some random guess here. And then it gets worse because mm -hmm. once you make an initial guess, later the agent can use its own past behavior as evidence for what the correct behavior is. This is something known as uh, causal delusions and was painted, well, pointed out in a series of papers by uh, Pedro Ortega, who used to be at uh, DeepMind. Hmm. If you just train an imitation learning agent with a standard algorithm and it kind of decides to go fast initially, and then a few time steps later, it, it can kind of look back and see, okay, I used to drive fast. And in all the training examples where early on the, the driver drives fast, he continues to drive fast. So then this is kind of evidence for continuing with a high speed. And of course, that's not ideal if the road is potentially icy. Yeah. So this is a slightly exaggerated example. Of course, uh, autonomous vehicles right now do not really have exactly this problem, but maybe you get the idea. What we do in this paper and what uh, in particular Risto does in this paper is study this problem uh, theoretically and characterize the different conditions under which we can solve it in imitation learning. And it's mostly limited to kind of simple toy scenarios, but we also develop an algorithm that we can run on in reinforcement learning or imitation learning settings, and we demonstrate it on a few continuous control problems. Mm. Interesting. How toy? <laughs> so, for instance, we have one environment. It's one of these uh, standard OpenAI uh, gym environments where you have like a robotic arm with a few degrees of freedom, and it can strike mm -hmm. a ball. And uh, there are some parameters that the agent doesn't know, like the weight of the ball or how much it slows down later, kind of the, the, the friction. And the expert knows these things. You can imagine that the expert maybe picked up the ball and placed it on the table before mm -hmm. they, they hit okay. it to play some, some mini golf or whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah. So this is something if you just do it once, there, there's just if you just train it on imitation learning and out there in your test environment, you have no way of knowing how hard to hit the ball. 
but we learn a policy that kind of does it twice and based on kind of observing how the ball behaves the first time, then figures out the value of the friction and, and the mass in these things and corrects the behavior for that in the next time. Awesome. Awesome. So it's still pretty toy. Yeah. But I think it's, it's at least not a kind of tabular data set anymore, but it's, it's slowly moving towards bigger problems. Right. How about demos? Yeah, it was great fun. It was the first time for me to be at the Qualcomm booth, at least uh, physically. And a lot of people came by and looked at the four demos that we had there. I'll talk to you about what exactly they were in a second, but I think what they all have in common is maybe research core competency, which is really making AI ubiquitous in the sense that we want to run machine learning systems on any kind of device. So we don't just run our systems on GPUs or even bigger mm -hmm. systems, but we had uh, two phones there, we had one tablet there, and we had one AR goggle there. And we were running our AI systems on all of these devices. And of course, all of these included Qualcomm chips inside. Now, more sure. concretely, we had one demo on super resolution. And here, the, the main novelty was that we quantized the super resolution network to int4, to 4-bit integers, which is uh, quite a bit smaller and quite a bit more efficient than what has been done before, at least in terms of real-world demos. Okay. We have another demo on conditional compute for video understanding on device. So here the idea is that we want to solve an action recognition problem. So you, you see some video data and you want to recognize what is being done in that video. And most methods do this by kind of parsing the full video, all frames, and then, then classifying the action. Mm -hmm. But my colleagues uh, developed this method called frame exit. I think it was presented at CVPR last year mm -hmm. that basically just looks at a few frames and then decides if it has seen enough and can make the decision already. And once it has seen enough, it kind of stops the computation. It doesn't require processing of all frames. Got it. And thus makes a still very efficient decision, but with- A lot more efficient. Exactly, with much less computation time. Also running on device, yeah. Okay. I mean, we had one demo on multimodal uh, few shot learning uh, on Teach Your AI. So we had a cute simulated robot dog on a tablet and you try to teach uh, gestures that you're performing to this dog. So you, you talk to the dog and at the same time you perform some gesture, you could tell the dog, I don't know, something with your hands. Mm -hmm. And after seeing it only a few times, it would kind of learn what these gestures meant by matching what you said and what passed as audio input with the video feed. Hmm. Also running on device. Okay. And then finally, uh, we had a demo on uh, 3D reconstruction on AR goggles. This is about the problem of depth estimation in AR. So when you have your AR goggles on to do anything with your environment, you really need to kind of reconstruct the 3D scene around you, right? You need to know how far away are these pixels that the camera is recording from you. And mm -hmm. in particular, you want to be able to do this with very strict hardware constraints, ideally even just from a single camera feed. So here, my colleagues developed monocular depth estimation network trained with self-supervised learning and then quantized that and ran it on device and it worked pretty well. Oh, wow. Is the processor on the AR goggles roughly equivalent to something that might be in a mobile phone? I think it's a little bit more restricted. I, I'm not an expert on this, but I, I believe that this okay. thing was a call a Snapdragon 888 chip in there. And I think these are less powerful than the, okay. you know, the Snapdragon 8 Gen 2 that we just announced that was running in our one of our phone demos. Okay. So I, I would like to add one thing to this. And I think what's really uh, unites these four demos and what, what make them work in addition to kind of these ideas on the method sides is this philosophy of full stack optimization, right? So at Qualcomm AI Research, we do everything from developing the architectures, thinking about the training algorithm, to quantizing the neural network. We use this um, AMAT AI model efficiency toolkit that's open source. And then finally also running it on our chips, mm -hmm. actually, that you can hold in your hand at the demo booth. I think that's quite neat. 
That's awesome. And I'll link to an interview that I did with one of your colleagues, Morali, on mm. that full stack philosophy, as well as some of the cool. other interviews that you've mentioned as well. With all that said, it sounds like quite a successful NURPS for you and, and your colleagues. So congratulations. I'd love to have you maybe close us out by talking a little bit about kind of where your research goes in the, in the future and kind of what you're most excited about in, across the various things that we've talked about. Thanks for the question. So this causal representation learning paper that we talked about at length earlier is really one example of how action and perception should inform each other. In the sense that in this paper, we show that if we can observe the effect of actions, it gives us a principled way of learning perception, learning representations, right? Mm -hmm. But I think this relation between action and perception goes further than just this one direction. And in the future, my colleagues and I would really like to continue working on this and maybe also going in the other direction. Can we learn principled ways of learning policies in an interactive environment based on ideas about causality, based on ideas about structure of a system, based on maybe ideas of how representations should behave under actions. And that's one direction I'm, I'm very excited about. Okay. More broadly, I, we talked about this already before, but I really think we should try to move away from identifiability theorems and more towards thinking about downstream applications. Mm -hmm. But you know what I find really beautiful in, in machine learning is the following. Like sometimes you have this hammer-based research where you have some elegant idea and some beautiful <laughs> theory, and then you just try to make this theory somehow work in some way. Yeah. And sometimes you have this nail-based research where you have a real-world problem and you really want to solve it. And working is the only way that matters. And often it ends up being more of an engineering effort than, than really kind of beautiful. But every now and then, these two things come together and you can really hit a hammer with a nail. You can really use something elegant from the theory side to solve a real world problem. That's where the beauty is. That's where machine learning is really fun. Awesome. Well, Johan, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your paper and some of your colleagues' work at NeurIPS. Really enjoyed learning about it. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.